Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 38, and I'm Joshua Klein. I'm Mike Updegraff, and Happy New Year, everybody. This is our first podcast of 2022. Oh, yeah, I almost said 2021. Yeah, no, no, we're leaving that year behind. Let's just forget it ever happened. Oh, does that mean that check I just wrote went, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, you got to change everything. We're in the future now, 2022. We're in the future now. Yeah. The future is now. So, yeah, um, we're excited about this uh, this next year. Uh, If you haven't heard, uh, we're going to be restoring an 1810 Cape house this year. I am sure we'll mention it on the podcast. It'll be on the blog. Uh, the Daily Dispatch every single day, actually. Probably we, will make it in the magazine. Probably. So, to varying degrees um, of. We'll be doing coverage. a lot of historic uh, restoration work, um, and uh, it'll be pretty awesome. There'll be some yeah. hand hewing, and then a lot of, you know, fitting uh, a 200 year old house into 21st century living. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of decisions to be made about how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, hand so. hewing, hand raising, and then how to insulate potentially you know with modern materials plumbing and electric and how do you make all that work together for 21st century life so uh there'll be a lot of that in the future uh this next year 2022 will be full of it so uh yeah we're looking forward to that yeah but between now and then uh here in maine we have a nor'easter coming and so probably i'll be working from home tomorrow Mm, um lots of snow expecting a good snowstorm with some wind and so today in order to uh celebrate we took down a big <laughs> dead pine tree that was standing next to your barn. Yeah. Uh, it's been on the list for a long yeah, time. Yeah, you've been watching it kind of crack and pop and wave in the wind uh, <laughs> the past few months. So so this is actually relevant because it's a, a woodworking, uh, or it's a wood-related thing. My goats killed my tree yeah. six years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, goats and deer... Um, they'll eat the bark of trees. And my goats, I had them fenced in around this pine tree and they ate at the roots. They were eating the bark right. off because they really liked it. And it girdled the tree and mm-hmm. killed the tree. Uh, so major regret. Shouldn't yeah. have done that. Didn't think it through. But what's interesting is we uh, took the tree down because uh, it had been standing dead for a few years. Um, and when we uh, cut it up into, into lengths, we were looking at the rings and the outermost rings... Um, we can see, uh, starting about six years ago, six rings ago, we can see that uh, the the decay started to set in. Right. So they must. And have... also, the growth was much slower in those six years. So you could see the tree was really stressed. Yeah. You were um, saying, "What in the what's world? What's going on, dude? You don't see me being eaten alive? <clears throat> yeah. Here? Come on, get these animals away from me." <laughs> so it is interesting because um, you know the old uh, traditional way of of girdling a tree. Um, before you'd cut it down, it was meant because um, what they do is they go out with like a big spud and they strip the bark around the perimeter, the base of a big pine tree a few years before cutting it. And what that would do is it would cause the resin to settle down towards the base of the tree where you'd want that preser- preservative resin for your log building. Hmm. So they'd girdle it, um, which would make the wood last longer when they'd go to use it. Wow. So... That is um, interesting. It is it is an interesting practice, which your goats were doing for you. So maybe those pine logs that we just dragged off into the brush. They'll last a they'll long last time. last forever. Well, I, I did have a, a small section of clear um, trunk at the at the bottom, about four feet. I can make into a doe trough or something. Yeah. So that and it'll last was, for generations. Yeah, it was pretty sound. So yeah, it was an interesting thing to observe, you know, to see that right in front of our eyes and go, oh, wow, yeah, six years ago, we had the goats in this area mm-hmm. and they ate it. And you can start to see what happened with the rings and uh, really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, so now you won't have to worry about that tree in the next big windstorm. Yeah, falling on my barn. So that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> Win-win. So we wanted to talk today about a um, pretty fascinating topic for us. Uh, we're calling this podcast to the ends of the earth and that's a that's a lofty title for um that's just, quite a scope it is quite a scope right um but we wanted to start the conversation uh by talking about a funny little tool that we saw in use that really inspired us yeah uh, we saw this video of uh it was a 1965 film 
of a Spanish chair maker. Um, and he was, uh, the chairs are quite rustic looking, mm-hmm. primitive looking or whatever you want to say. Um, and he was making them out actually in an, kind of in the alley outside of his shop um, for the footage actually. Um, but so he was using Probably more light out there, right? Yeah. I actually did hear that the filmmaker said, Hey, can Moved you come, come out? out so I can kind yeah. of see what you're doing. Um, but so he was sitting on a bench, like a, a little staked bench and he was shaping the parts. You know, you would think, Oh yeah, like on a shaving horse. Well, actually no, not a shaving horse. Um, he was sitting at a bench and he was pinning the workpiece uh, from his chest or his gut into a, just a block on the, the staked bench. And he was actually taking what you would think would be a draw knife and was pushing it. So it's like a mm-hmm. push knife. Right. But the handles were really strange. It wasn't like a, um, it's not like a draw knife that you and I are familiar with, the, the draw knife with the two handles, you know, in the same direction. But one handle was straight, like kind of like you'd expect. Uh, it's a straight line uh, through the edge. Mm-hmm. And then the other handle is actually perpendicular. So if you think of the axis of the handle, right? So the axis is perpendicular to the other one. It's hard to explain. We're not talking about right angle. We're talking about the handles in a different orientation. Right. So all that to say, you can get all this this pivoting leverage to be able to push down. And just watching this guy work was so fascinating to us. He worked so fast. Yeah, and so it's, it's like just taking the draw knife shaving horse operation and flipping it around 180 and mm-hmm. doing it all forward and all of the different dynamics you would want to adjust to make that happen. Right. Um, so we got excited about this and we wanted to uh, dig into it and learn more about it. We've learned that the tool is called a cuchilla, yeah. which unfortunately Google Translate tells us means blade. Yeah, it's just a very generic <laughs> Which Spanish doesn't term. help us. So yeah, uh, so searching around for this tool... Um, Basically, uh, the internet gives us no leads for ways to purchase them. Um, we've seen some photos of uh, this chairmaker in his shop, and we've seen that he has a selection of these things hanging on the wall, right, hanging on a nail. And some there, there's uh, there are variations on the form. Some blades have more curves, some have less, some are bigger, some are smaller. But it seems like it's um, the kind of tool that uh, a chairmaker would have. A handful of and so they they must be around somewhere if you know what to ask for um so we started looking for a a similar tool that we could modify into this tool and joshua you found something on on ebay yeah it was ebay uk ebay uk because i was looking for i mean it kind of bears some resemblance faintly to a, a bill hook right um and so uh we were looking for on eBay UK for an antique hand-forged billhook or something to try to find one that had a curve in it enough that would work that we could modify to become a cuchilla mm-hmm. as, as much as we could determine from this video. <clears throat> um, so I bought one that um, the seller described it as a billhook, but it was not a billhook. something hook. weird about it. Was it was not a regular yeah. billhook. It was some other funny thing. But I what it looked like to me is that... Um, there was like this, there's this little tiny hook up on top of it. It looked like it's just a tang. Right, a tang missing its wooden handle. Yeah, so... So it has one wooden handle with a through tang on one end, and then this 90-degree bend with a tang, what looks like a tang at the other end, but no handle. So this seller said, oh, it's it's like a bill hook. Mm-hmm. It's an easy mistake to make, I guess, but it looks like a tang, not a, not a continuous hook. Yeah, it's certainly not a cutting edge. Yeah, so... Uh, the tool was shipped. I got the tool, opened it up, and I posted about it on the dispatch and said, you know, we want to turn this thing into a cuchilla. It looks like it's missing a handle here, this, you know, empty tang and whatever. And uh, one of our dispatch followers said, hey, you know what? Actually, are you sure that's a tang? Because that looks just like a sugar beet knife. Yeah, beet knife. That I used when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I said, a sugar beet knife? What the heck yeah. is that? And I looked it up, and yeah. sure enough, that is a thing. It's a sugar beet knife. Um, and most of them that I've seen so far are straight blades. And this one has a curve to it, just like this cuchilla. Mm-hmm. But there is one example, which was actually made by Spear and Jackson. Yeah. Which has a nice curve on it. It looks almost identical to mine, even the same handle and everything. Yeah. Um, so 
this was for uh, he was saying it's it's sort of like a um oh what's the word what am I thinking of with the um picking up wood the oh hook. like a picaroon oh Pi- uh, yeah like yeah. a picaroon right mm-hmm. so it's sort of like a picaroon for, for beets for, for beets yeah you can pick up the beet without bending over so far and then you can you know slice it so. Uh, anyways, it was just interesting to like try to chase down this Spanish chair making tool, mm-hmm. and you get an eBay UK looking for bill hooks, and then someone sends you something, and then it's this beat knife. Yeah. And you're learning about this stuff, so I can convert it into back to like what yeah. I think of as so like, yeah, a we're Spanish gonna tool. we're gonna modify this tool into the Spanish cuchilla. Who knows where it came? Like, let's say it's a Spear and Jackson sugar beet knife from the UK. <laughs> uh, very interesting. Um, and, uh, just real quick as an aside, I will mention before we get into our conversation, the dispatch, how amazing a resource that has turned into. Um, yeah, it's just like nonstop. We'll post stuff, but then our readers are just firing back with a lot more information and saying, Hey, I don't think it's that way. I think it's actually this way. And Mm -hmm. uh, just the other day I posted a a theory about something Mm -hmm. and I got uh, a few people offering a, a there's a there were a lot of different theories, but there was this uh, thread of other theories about the lid is for leaning against the wall, not for what you said. And I was like, "You've yeah. convinced me. You're right. You're totally yeah. right." It's it's really neat because um, we're talking about the the mortise and tenon daily dispatch. So every day we're posting multiple photos and or videos of different resources we have around here, different pieces of furniture, different funny tools that we've come across. And we're sharing all the information we have on it. And then our, our readers and the followers of the dispatch are sharing what they know. And it's really great. It's been a lot of fun um, for us to do that and for us to uh, be in touch with these people who who happen to have, you know, uh, a little bit more information that they can offer on all these things. Yeah. So, So, yeah, it's cool because, you know, we're doing this podcast and we have the blog and stuff, but really we can't do all this content. We've talked about this in the podcast before, but I mean, if this kind of stuff, like weird rabbit trails, <laughs> Kuchia and all this different stuff, if that's interesting to you and you want it every single weekday, multiple mm-hmm. times a day, mtdailydispatch.com. Yeah. Uh, we just have lots of conversations going on there all day long, looking at antique furniture and tools and shop tips and book recommendations. And it's just really exciting so that's the kind of stuff that's our world right now we're just really excited about all these discussions uh, going on with people uh, sending us pictures of their tools and lots of insight yeah um so as we were talking about the cuchilla and how we're going to on the the forge uh, uh, how about this the within the blacksmith shop built for us by french carpenters Mm -hmm. uh, combining french and american styles we're going to take this UK sugar beet knife and turn it into a Spanish chair making tool. Okay, how's that for a, in a train of in Maine? In, yep. in the US. Yeah. Um, so that is a good segue into what we want to talk about today, in terms of to the ends of the earth. This idea of pre-industrial woodworking uh, and what it actually looks like in history and um, geographically as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've found is. Uh, from the very beginning, we've been talking about our interest in pre-industrial woodworking. Yep. And for a lot of people, they instantly said, oh, and they had this very specific time window. Mm-hmm. They mean, they, they took like it to be like... Like 18th century American. Like, yeah, 17th, right. 18th century, and then like the first 20 years of the 19th century. You immediately picture like tri-corner hats and... Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, a lot of people said, oh, I see. It's, you know, like American period furniture. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's what you guys are all about. And it, it's sort of like, well, well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that that's what I'm familiar with. That's yeah. my region. But no, in the sense that, that I don't know about other traditions yet. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I want other people to talk about too. So my our interest in pre-industrial is not so much American, very specific time period, but it's actually pre-industrial manufacture. It's outside of, separate from the industrial homogenizing effect of manufacture. Yeah. Because that's what's super interesting. And I think, uh, can you say that again? Because that is a really important point. So that's, it's pre-industrial for us is not time bound Mm -hmm. and it's not even culture bound, but it's within any culture. It's the, the craft production 
that is outside of industrial manufacturing processes. Yes. Okay. So it's not doesn't have this homogenizing effect that you know when you get into mass production, which mm-hmm. has benefits for productivity and being able to make a lot of stuff. What the cost to that, the the craft cost of that is that everything is the same. Yep. You have to have everything prepped by machines. Everything's flat and square, and it all looks the same. And that is a an, uh, an efficient way to produce a lot of stuff. Yeah. However, when you have a before that you had a diversity of um, uh, decorative styles and preferences and whatever, and something could be custom made for a person or the user themselves would make something. And so you had all this diversity. That's, I, I think, one of the main reasons we love antiques because they're so quirky and, right. um, you know. There's so much local variation. Yeah. And so this the problem is that's just not very efficient. Right. So you get into industrialization, you have to wipe all that uniqueness out and yep. all the diversity out. <clears throat> to try to streamline it to have the most efficient design. Yeah. I yeah. think um, I think of the book, which has been republished by Lost Art Press, and I can't recommend it highly enough, uh, Woodworking in Estonia. And um, the author, I believe his name's pronounced Ants Virus, but don't quote me on that. Uh, he He's looking at um, all the craft practice up into the 20th century in Estonia, and... Um, He's, he's writing this as an observer of these things going away. And so he sees all these craft practices, all these craft fairs going on. People would load their wagons with their wares and bring them into town, all these handmade things, and they'd sell them. Uh, and he was seeing that, uh, how fast that all went away under the influence of the Soviet uh, industrial juggernaut. So mm-hmm. basically when Estonia became a, a, a satellite republic of the Soviet Union, um, everyone was conscripted into food production and factory work. So all the local workers were were taken away from their their um, household economy and moved into the factories yep. and the fields. And uh, basically, how the the book describes it is overnight, these craft traditions were wiped out. They were mm. gone. So that is that is an extreme example like of a big change overnight that happened that destroyed, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of craft tradition. Um, But that is the danger of industrialization uh, to homogenize uh, everything around us, Mm -hmm. you know, all the, all the everyday objects we use. And I think that's the real key. So for us, our interest is in the, um, the homogenization aspect, because it's not just that we've, we are all individually creating different things and we're just picking up different tools now is that a lot of us um, have shifted away from producing things to being um, a small piece of a much larger production unit. So we're not actually making the thing ourselves, um, but we're just doing a small little part of it. Mm. Now, again, that's really efficient. Mm-hmm. That's right. how you would want a really strong market to be able to have the diversity of offerings. And, you know, as a uh, who was it? Leonard Reed wrote that pencil, or that wrote that essay, "I Pencil," talking mm. about how no one can make a pencil. Right. Uh, that whole that whole concept. <laughs> um, it's true. Yeah. We have a lot of things uh, that we can really gain from, but but the cost is that everything has to be the um, to be the same. So it even even though it's not just that we have different tools now, we have digital tools, mm-hmm. as it were, and we're now we don't have hammers. Now we have computers, but it's all the same. Right. No, it's actually not. The tend of uh, the tendency of uh, technology is to streamline, to make the most efficient, optimized, homogenized um, production. Right. So that gives us here at MNT a little twinge of sadness. Like, oh, yeah. But there's so much unique beauty in the world that we want to hold up and celebrate, and say, let's not throw this out. Uh, for the sake of efficiency, right? Um, so, yeah. So we um, a couple years ago now, I guess, developed uh, the M and T um, mission statement, right? So um, the mission of Mortis and Tenon, uh, we have Mortis and Tenon exists to cultivate reverence for the dignity of humanity and the natural world through the celebration of handcraft. Um, so we we kind of we we worked hard to put that sentence together to give us clarity in what we're pursuing here. Yeah. So the question is, why? I mean, we're publishing about woodworking and this certain kind of woodworking. 
Uh, but why? What is what is our big goal? What's mm-hmm. our mission? What are we trying to further in the world? And so we're trying to cultivate reverence. We're trying to cultivate this sense of awe and appreciation uh, for primarily two things, um, the dignity of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, meaning all people, and the natural world through the celebration of handcraft. Yeah. So that is exactly what we're talking about in this podcast episode that we're going to, we see handcraft as having this really powerful potential to be able to celebrate the the beauty that is made in this world by people as they pick up tools themselves and make things. Um, And so it's not just make things over, you know, completely devoid of the natural world, but someone will fell a tree, grab an ax and say, I want to learn how to do this too. Mm -hmm. And that is something to be celebrated. And we want to cultivate reverence and excitement about that people making things with natural materials. Yeah. I mean, that's that that's imparting culture on nature is what we as humans have always done. You know, Mm -hmm. we take these natural materials and we make um, beautiful things that are different from what every other uh, group of people in every other region makes, but there are also lots of similarities. And so we can really find common ground in the similarities, but then we can also see beauty in variety mm-hmm. uh, in all the ways that things are, are different. And so that's that's what we are all about and what get, gets us really excited. You know, we, we're not um, just so focused on, say, 18th century uh, New England furniture, though we love the stuff, mm-hmm. can't get enough of it. Yeah. Um, but we also love, uh, you know, Swedish stump chairs and uh, things that are far crazier than even those. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing is we're saying, okay, so we live here. Mm-hmm. This is what we got access to. And so we continue to, um, you know, share pictures and write about and explore our own tradition here. But we're saying, okay, but you know what? I've never been to Africa. I've, I've mm-hmm. never been to Japan before. I don't know... Um, the, all these tr- traditions. And so I want to learn more about the Swedish tradition right. and, you know, uh, Romanian uh, right. construction. So yeah. we thought, you know, we're doing everything we can to try to learn from people, reading books and, um, you know, even just internet searches, trying to find out what people are doing around yeah. the world. Having conversations with lots and lots of people. Yeah. And so there's that. We can do that and we can hire authors who are in those traditions who can write about things for us. And that's good. But we still felt like we just want to be, there are so many people out there who know so much about one given facet of of their tradition and uh, we don't know about them Mm -hmm. and maybe they don't know about us and maybe they want to find out how to, um, you know, we did have people emailing us telling us, um, you know, I I want to do some research on this one aspect. How would you yeah, recommend I, I proceed that? with that? Yeah. I have a few connections, but I don't know what I never done this research before. Mm-hmm. And we'd say, well, yeah, that sounds great. I don't yeah. know. You should. Talk Here's to our the best museum. advice. You know, who knows? So we decided. You know, we wanted to figure out a way to um, to facilitate that and to get more research happening that would not otherwise happen. Right. And so that was um, the seed idea for. Uh, the Mortis and Tenon Craft Research Grant. Yeah, 2021 was a busy year for us. (laughs) We're looking back um, at our year-end meeting of the different things that came together in 2021. Um, One of the big ones being the the start of the Craft Research Grant. Oh, man. So, uh, yeah, all the looking into the different angles, the different ways we could structure the thing. And, um, but... Uh, basically, to summarize what it is, uh, we every year are offering two uh, separate research grants to two individuals, or I mean, we can be flexible if they're individuals or, you know, a team or whatever. Um, two individuals for uh, research uh, around the world into pre-industrial craft. Yep. And um, the grant is um, at, at the publishing of this podcast, we're offering up to $3,000 for each individual. Uh, to pursue their their research. And um, one of the things that will come out of this research is that person will write an essay, which we will publish in the magazine mm-hmm. in a future, future issue. So there will be an article about their research. Um, so we, we got super excited about this idea because um, it allows for people all over the world who maybe don't have a way of pursuing this, this thing that they're passionate about 
to do it because suddenly they can pay for their plane tickets and they yep. can pay for what they need. Um, take, take some time off of work to take focus some time on off. the writing or whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then we will be able to share it with all our readers yeah. and we'll be able to, um, to learn as well and, and to grow in our understanding of what pre-industrial craft around the world looks like. Um, so uh, last year we got a bunch of great applicants. It was it was pretty hard <laughs> selecting mm-hmm. just two, um, but uh, our two recipients last year were Agnes Chang and Carrie Lambertson. Now I, Agnes is I'm not sure if she's still in Taiwan right now. Uh, she traveled to Taiwan to uh, meet with and study the practices of the last remaining traditional Taiwanese plane makers. And now Taiwanese um, woodworking is an interesting mix of of Chinese, Japanese, and Western woodworking. So um, they use basically what we would look at and, and call it a Chinese style plane, which is um, looks like a Japanese plane with a handle that you push. I guess that's <laughs> that's that's what we'd say. And they do it standing at a Western style bench. So um, there's there's sure to be lots of different uh, interesting overlaps and things like that. But um, Agnes has gone over there to um, to study this and she's really excited about the work. She's actually done quite a bit of, of uh, research and study and she's very knowledgeable um, already before yep. even going over there to interview these this handful of, of elderly plane makers who remain and who are still practicing that craft in Taiwan. That is so cool. Yeah. Uh, we we've been getting um, occasional updates from her, but uh, it's awesome stuff. Um, and the other recipient from 2021 is Carrie Lambertson, who is, he is a fiddler, he's a woodworker, and he's fascinated with vernacular violin making. So like when we, when we talk about, uh, let's say, um, when you think about a, like a classical violin, we're thinking like the, uh, the concert halls of Europe and and these extra like million dollar Stradivarius and things like that. Or like when I went to luthier school to build guitars, mm. I'm picturing that too. Like yeah. all of the precision, like everything is so elegant and precise and just yeah. like just so. And so Carrie uh, is researching um, this idea. Well, it's not an idea. This this fact that um, many vernacular makers were making violins. This was a, a country instrument, right? This mm. is like the fiddle is was not made in some uh, laboratory type setting in Europe, but it was made in in the the joiner shop or whatever. You know, who an instrument maker in um, some uh, off the beaten path town, mm. and so he's looking at. The fact that they made these things with local woods, you know, local materials, there are, there are tool marks inside and out, but they made beautiful music. And this is um, the traditional instrument of, you know, Eastern North America. He's, he's focusing on Cape Breton um, in, uh, in Canada and the Cape Breton fiddling tradition in this vernacular instrument. And so uh, we are, again, really excited to see his work. Yeah. Um, hopefully, maybe we'll even get to hear some of it. Oh, I think that'd be, that'd be awesome. great. Yeah, he should send us some video of some yeah. of that stuff. Playing some of the instruments he's made. Yeah, so we're going to be, you know, again, having two more recipients uh, this year for the next round um, of, of research uh, grant uh, money. So um, there'll be that coming too. Um, but I mean, really, it, this really is just furthering the, the kind of work we've been wanting to do, or we have been doing for a while. You know, we've had uh, for for several years now. We've been consciously trying to expand outside of New England. You know, first it was like dipping down into the south a little bit, and yeah. moving a little bit west, and trying you know some you know trying in Europe. And, and we're basically we were actually just before this podcast uh, going through the table of contents of our past issues, our, our last our, you know our first eleven issues, going through them and writing down all of the different. Um, cultural traditions that we've uh, been able to highlight or just touch on an aspect. And the list is huge. It is. It's so, Yeah. I mean, it's most really continents fun. have been touched. Yeah. And not it, Antarctica, but no, I think it's tough to no. find a woodworking tradition down there. Yeah. There aren't many. Not many, not much wood. That I know of. <laughs> right. They just haven't been researched yet. Yeah. 
So if you want to apply for the research grant and you're living at like Vostok Station or something down there <laughs> on the, the Vincent Massif or something. Yeah, we promised to publish it. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, 100% you're in. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, we don't know much about um, the Antarctic woodworking tradition. Um, but yeah, we've, we've had some uh, really awesome authors from around the world and who are... Um, who have traveled to different places around the world to um, to research and to write about some of these traditions, and um, you know, as we said, our starting place is is New England. But if, even if you look at the way that New England furniture has developed from other traditions, you can start to chase that backwards into oh, yeah. different areas. Definitely. Um, so. Uh, one one place that um, it was fun for me to look at a couple a few issues ago was I wrote about different work holding traditions, um, <clears throat> basically this idea of like freeboard work holding where the board is not fastened down to the bench, but um, found you know uh, a lot of information about that in in the uh, in Western work holding basically using like a bench hook and things like that rather than a tail vice um and then in in japanese woodworking and also in um indigenous north american woodworking you know so this is the um the uh, like first nations people making things like canoes and canoe paddles and and different things with uh, a, a very simple toolkit basically five tools that were used um to to make everything that was needed in the household and you know what's so interesting about that? I don't mean to cut you off, but oh, yeah, I was just thinking it. about um, if you haven't read uh, Joseph Moxon's um, Mechanic Exercises, what's so interesting about it is when you read the preface, mm. uh, uh, Moxon's writing in the 17th century from a very English perspective. So he's talking about this is, um, you know, these, you know, like I don't remember his wording, but it's like this really, you know, s solid sound uh, uh, craft tradition, not like the barbarous traditions where these, you know, crude, primitive, and it's just a really obviously um, uncouth presentation yeah. of a whole nother culture. Yeah. What I find so interesting about it is um, he was disparaging these traditions who don't have highly developed, sophisticated tools. Mm. He was disparaging their traditions that it wasn't very developed. But what I find so fascinating is w w like if you're talking about like um, using a mocha token, mm -hmm. right? This little tiny knife to carve canoe paddles. Right. Hand that to someone, hand yeah. that to Joseph Moxon. Yeah, and tell say, Moxon make to make something paddle. beautiful with that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so <clears throat> the more um, highly developed your tools are, the less dependent on the skill of the artisan it is. Right. So Joseph Moxon should have said, and this is so amazing. These mm -hmm. guys are so good because their tools are are simpler, and therefore mm -hmm. they have to have a higher level of skill to execute the work they're yeah. doing. I mean, speaking talking about like workmanship of risk and unjigged oh. tools. I mean, we're talking making everything you need with an axe and a crooked knife and a knife and an awl. Yeah. And I mean, uh, any operation was able to be accomplished uh, very crisply and cleanly and quickly with those tools. Yep. Um, so that was a fascinating thing to delve into for me. Um, I, I would definitely like to learn more about that. And that is a, a tradition that exists, you know, parallel to the, the typical New England Yankee woodworking tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things were being done at the same time, yep. um, just a few centuries ago. So, uh, very interesting stuff. Yeah, we've had several pieces um, that have touched on uh, aspects of uh, Japanese woodworking tradition, which I think you know a lot of Western woodworkers are familiar with, uh, with the um, Japanese saws that are available, and even um, the Japanese planes from a distance. Most of us look and say, oh, wow, I've seen those, and those are so mm -hmm. cool. But uh, many of us have actually used Japanese saws, at least the, um, the disposable kind. The, right, the, the, the hardware store The hardware variety. store kind. Um, so, I mean, that to me is just sort of uh, almost, it's a sort of mainstream in Western woodworking culture now yeah. to think of a I Japanese tool. I think it has tool, become that. Um, which is, I think, really great. Um, we've done some stuff on Swedish Sloyd uh, tradition with uh, Yoga Sundquist. 
Um, and the, the, the one that I, um, as you, so those are a little bit more known and common. You'd think of, oh yeah, Sloyd. Yeah, that's, that's what that is. And of course, Japanese, you guys should do some stuff on Japanese stuff. But something I didn't, that didn't come to mind right away, but that came our direction was um, the Australian chair making. Yeah. I was like, oh, whoa, okay, yeah. So, all right, what was going on in Australia? Wow, what do they do in there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and learning about the, the chair making of uh, Jimmy Possum. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, and it's just, you can see this, this vernacular tradition that developed um, around the Jimmy Possum tradition. You know, it's this, this way of making chairs that took off and has become this, um, this local way to make uh, chairs um, that is just so compelling. Yeah. Um, parts of like the whole Jimmy Possum story that, that, um, Mike Epworth wrote for us. Um, parts of that, that I find extremely interesting are, uh, trying to figure out first of all, who Jimmy Possum was and the, the suggestions that he could have been, um, a a first nations Australian Aborigine basically, um, living outside of town in a hollow tree, making chairs and some of the evidence of these possibilities include, um, you know, there are existing chairs that that seem to have evidence that the mortises in the chairs were burned out, which was a um, an old um, Australian Aboriginal method of wood boring. So it's a combination of burning and boring out with like a um, a very simple uh, drill or s- some sort of tool like that. And so to me, that is absolutely fascinating that here's this chair, um, this chair form that kind of looks like a, um, a little bit like a Windsor, a little bit like a Welsh stick chair kind of thing, um, but it's being made using these extremely ancient um, methods of, of boring mortises. So um, those kinds of explorations are the, the kinds of things that like keep us up at night like thinking and, and wondering what's going on and what else there is to learn out there. So one of the things I've, I've been thinking about with this, you know, we've been talking about um, pre-industrial. Another word really that you could use to describe this um, is a word that um, is sort of sometimes used as a pejorative, um, except if you're an antique dealer. Mm. <clears throat> antique dealers like this word, but vernacular woodworking. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is you have this um, idea of um, vernacular is like the local language, right? right? And um, so it's like every little uh, region has its own vernacular, its own local tradition and and heritage. And I just recently finished a book by um, uh, Ivan Illich called Shadow Work. Hmm. And he actually picks up this word vernacular to talk about this exact kind of thing. Now, he's not restricting it to craft work, but it definitely includes craft work. So he's talking about vernacular values. And he tells this story about the shift, um, about the development of this concept of the mother tongue, like the the mother language okay. of a people. And he traces it to this guy named Nebriha in 1492, he, in, Spain, in Spain, he's appealing to the queen saying, um, the printing press is, uh, is underway and all these local languages are distributing these books all over the place. But, so they're sharing information, but they mm. can't really communicate with each other. And Nebriha is really bothered by this. Mm. This really irritates him. And so he proposes to the queen that they develop the queen's language, the official language huh. that they will enforce on every other place. And so he develops this whole grammar. He says, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And in, around this time, you know, in the turn of uh, the, like at the 1500s, Nebriha, you know, brings this to the queen saying, this is the language. And then it's imposed on everybody. Whoa. And all these vernacular yeah. languages are wiped out. So Illich is using this as an example of what can happen with homogenization. And so he talks about, um, you know, we want to, you know, kind of cultivate and maintain, hold on to vernacular values. Um, and what he means by that is just the ability to be distinct, the mm. ability to make something for yourself, to embrace your tradition and just say, you know, I want to learn from my ancestors. I'm not only interested in what um, efficiency and industrialism will sell to me, right. but I actually want to embrace being a, a person in this place and I want to learn how to make stuff. So this book, if you're interested in the more historical, philosophical um, 
one historical philosophical direction. If you pick up uh, Shadow Work by Yvonne Illich, he talks about some of these things in a really powerful way. Wow, that is that is really interesting. I mean, speaking yep. of like imposing a homogenizing factor on everyone, <laughs> like <laughs> this is how you will speak yeah. now. Yeah, get rid of that way that you and your ancestors have always talked. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, I mean, it's it reminds me of, um, and we we actually talk a lot about uh, Amy Umble's article that she wrote for us in is that issue eight, yeah, um, where she was talking about trying to find her her place. Right, the article is called a sense of place, and she uh, she is a an extremely skilled. Uh, carver. She carves wooden spoons and 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 bowls and different things. Um, she does this beautiful work, and it's really precise. And she has um, now she's developed this uh, beautiful like geometrical form that she carves into the handles. Um, that's based around the the quilts that her grandmother used to make. Um, and and she she grew up in this tradition of quilting, right? It's like this the the Pennsylvania, Maryland kind of quilting tradition. Like I remember that my, my grandmother would have uh, all these old ladies and they'd all do sit around and do quilting all day. And I always thought, boy, I hope I don't get roped into like going and helping with that. I just don't want to be doing that. But um, so Amy writes about uh, trying to find her place within the scope of craft tradition of like looking to people who are doing craft in their own old tradition and just feeling left out. And I think a lot of us um, American woodworkers can can kind of relate to that. Like yeah. what is our craft tradition? Yeah. So Amy um, was talking about this desire. Um, I mean, she's going to decorate her work and she's trying to find this home, this craft mm-hmm. uh, home. And so <clears throat> she says, I hunted for a connection to something larger than myself, some sort of cultural symbolism. After some internet sleuthing, I was strongly drawn to Sami designs from northern Scandinavia, most likely because my spoons are based on Swedish spoon carving traditions. Hmm. But it felt wrong to use Sami symbols in my work. Trying to navigate this fascination was difficult. I was so drawn to their designs and symbolism, but it felt like cultural misappropriation to cover the things I was making with designs from another culture, Hmm. a culture that maintained a rich tradition of meaning behind those symbols. So she wondered, you know, why was I so attracted to that? And maybe I should ask, where do I come from? Right. What's my own tradition? Rather than just looking out on the internet to f- look at something that looks really something cool. Something pretty, yeah. <laughs> and then just take that on, like, that's my thing, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the interesting point that she gets at there is that that Sami tradition of symbols was based on a very old, rich tradition. Um, that you know these symbols had meanings in Sami mythology. They had meanings for you know, like the the bedtime stories that were told to generations of kids. Mm-hmm. And so we look at uh, like a, a craft traditions, um, like let's say the uh, the old uh, hex symbols on on Dutch barns, right? And we say, mm-hmm. oh, that's beautiful. I'm gonna make some of those, but. We're 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 just kind of skimming the surface of the meaning behind that thing. Mm-hmm. We're we're not really understanding where it came from. We're just kind of using it to decorate what we're making. Which reminds me of like the Shaker article we did. We yeah. had there are, there are two living actually three now three yeah <laughs> three, three living shakers living in the world. Oh, and it was down to two for a little while. Now mm-hmm. it's up to three. So. Um, Brother Arnold had wrote uh, an article for us. So he's one of the last living Shakers, and he wrote about Shaker tradition. And so you think about, like, so we were talking about different ethnic uh, traditions, Mm -hmm. but we also had, you know, this Shaker tradition, which is not based on ethnicity, but this faith tradition. Right. And so their objects that they created, as we all know, were imbued with their own, uh, you know, philosophy or worldview or whatever world, whatever word you want to use, their own uh, sense of understanding of their place in the world. So it's so interesting that there's this whole faith tradition that we like to disparage, you know, because they're like, you know, um, celibate and kind of weird or whatever, but we really like their furniture. Mm-hmm. So let's make their furniture, rip it out of that context and just right. make their own furniture. Yeah. So people make shaker furniture without 
getting to the roots of it. Like, why does it look that way? Like, who yeah. were these people who invented this and designed it? Why was it made simply? Why were there the why was the adorning so simple but yet the design is actually quite complex there's really nothing simple about it yeah so i think that's kind of like what what amy's point is is saying you know she used the phrase cultural misappropriation mm -hmm. you know saying like i see that that is part of something and for me to just take it yeah as if it didn't mean anything i want that as mine yeah right yeah, so it, it's a good point. It's a really interesting way to, to look at craft, to, to find your own roots. Yeah, so um, another another perspective on that, which is um, paralleling in some way and contrasting in other ways, and I think the two together might help to kind of come up with a picture of this. Um, so uh, Bill Copperthwaite wrote in his book, A Handmade Life, uh, he he's talking about this concept of cultural blending. So... Um, he, uh, Bill traveled around the world and he, um, uh, basically he, he traveled to, to learn more about handcraft in different areas. He traveled to teach, uh, yurt building to, to people all which around is the a world, Mongolian which is, which is totally building a, tradition, totally yeah. this tradition that he, he studied and learned about and drew out of and built his own ideas into, and then went around the world teaching people how to build these, these beautiful structures, um, but he's talking about his, his thoughts on what he calls cultural blending. Um, he says, My house has its origins in the steppes of Asia. My felt boots came by way of Finland from Asian shepherds. My cucumbers came from Egypt. My lilacs from Persia. My boat from Norway. And my canoe is American Indian. My crooked knife for paddle making is Bering Coast Eskimo. My axe is 19th century main design. And my pickup is 20th century Detroit. We are a cultural blend. And so what, what Bill, I think, is getting at here is he wants to recognize the individual beauty of all these different things. Mm. When he talks about cultural blending, he's not saying, let's add all the ingredients together and hit the, hit the on switch until it's all a the uniform blender. like brown. <laughs> or like purple or whatever color it is when you mix everything together. He's saying, let's appreciate these things individually. Like we, we as Americans, um, we have, we draw from all these different, like the melting pot, right. That we talk about, like I might go and have, uh, you know, Italian food for dinner, or I might have Mexican food for dinner, mm. or I might have, uh, like a Sri Lankan or Mongolian barbecue, like all mm. these things, I probably won't have Mongolian barbecue, but you should. Uh, yeah, it's good stuff. I mean, who doesn't like that? Uh, but all these things are open to us, and they are they're available here primarily because this is a nation of of immigrants, right? All these different people came and brought all these traditions, and it would be really sad if all those foods are just thrown together and blended into a paste, right? <laughs> like it's good because it's distinctive. It's good because. Yeah. Each one is different. Sort of like my, my kids ask, like, what is, in my littlest, he goes, what is blue and yellow and red? And I'm like, um, brown. Like, like yeah. when, you, when you take all the colors, you mix them all as one. Yeah. It just sort it's of ends up like, in the, I don't know, it's all this. But as opposed to like a kaleidoscope or something, where yeah. you have all these colors in their uh, enabled to be their own colors and they're kind of you know, moving around each other and, and integrated. Uh, it's different than just blending it all up. Right. Which, I mean, <laughs> that's what we're talking about in terms of what came of uh, the industrial revolution. It was kind of like a giant blender that took all the, all the different interesting ingredients and ground them all down together to form a Because you can choke it paste. down faster. Yeah, you can choke it down faster. <laughs> <laughs> it maybe has a longer shelf life. I don't know. Um, but so we're, we're really um, talking and thinking a lot about that, that idea that um, all these different um, craft practices from all around the world, uh, these pre-industrial practices, these pre-homogenization practices, all have um, a, a beauty and a value of their own and are worth exploring. Yeah. They're I worth mean, looking at. One of the things I think about with that is like, 
you know, how many times have you seen, if you have ever looked at um, any other tradition's way of working or something, and you, you look at the picture or you watch a little video clip or whatever the, the uh, medium is, you look at that and you say, are you kidding me? That's crazy. I, that wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Do you have that kind of attitude? Because you know what's amazing is that, you know, hundreds maybe, thousand years of tradition mm-hmm. of doing that exact thing mm-hmm. effectively for their own culture you know, so I think for me, I, I would say it's really important to not write off a tradition. Yeah. To not look at something and say, "Yeah, that wouldn't work." Yeah. Or why would you want to do it that way? Yeah. You know, but instead say, "What's amazing is this has been done for hundreds, at least hundreds mm-hmm. of years, and there's something in that." And yeah, maybe it actually requires you to develop more skill mm-hmm. to be able to do it because it looks like something that would be so complicated or so hard to pull off. Right. But they're doing it. Yeah. And that should, instead of um, encouraging, you know, kind of despairing the whole thing, it should encourage, you know, a, a sort of a cultivation of reverence as we've talked about or this awe saying, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, humans are pretty awesomely creative. <laughs> like that's that's one thing that you, you look um, around the world at the the things that have uh, been made and the um, even civilizations built in in these cultural uh, we talk about cultural heritages yeah. right or or uh, craft her- craft heritages plural yeah so yeah you and I do yeah but I haven't heard of other people talking that way I don't yeah. know why it's like our <clears throat> cultural heritage. Right, like, like the like human cultural heritage. We do tend to speak of things in terms of, of monoliths, right? We yeah. speak of communities as a monolith, of basically clumping everyone in one category together. Yeah. And we speak of heritage in the same way, yeah. as if the past was just this thing that we all have in common, and it, it, was, it was just uniform. That's yeah. our heritage. So sure, I guess in a sense you could say there's a human heritage, but even more sweet is that there are heritages, mm-hmm. there are plural heritages, that um, we have all these different strains of creativity and culture and expression of, um, of this, you know, human heritage, uh, different expressions of it, which is so beautiful, mm-hmm. which is so exciting. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, and we were, um, you know, before all this uh, craziness uh, took place in our world a few years ago with... Uh, you know, some virus. I, I heard about this virus. I don't know if you heard that there's this virus around. But um, we were looking at the possibility of uh, traveling to um, Alsace in France. And Joshua, you were talking about that's where your family's from. Yeah, that's it. Uh, well, so it's interesting because you say like, okay, so what's your heritage? Mm-hmm. Where do you come from? Right. What, what is your, your bloodline or something? Like where does, if you were to do the the, um, ancestry, the, yeah, ancestry or, or the, the blood test whatever or whatever um if you were to do that what would your percentages be or what, what would you where would you come from mm-hmm. and i think for a lot of us probably the majority of people listening i would guess i don't know uh there would be a long list of different traditions different heritages <laughs> different backgrounds that you uh come from right so i might have um this you know my strongest percentage in alsace but i also have um Native American uh, mm-hmm. in me, and I have uh, all these other things that are all mixed together. And so it's hard for me to kind of separate that, say, like, I am this one person, right? And you are that person. You come from this place, and I come from this place because the reality is I'm kind of mixed up. I got a lot of different stuff in me, and that's what's great. Yeah. You know, it's, um, and that's, I think that's what Copperthwaite is talking about that we are, yeah, uh, that we are. All a blend. Cult, a blend. Yeah. We are a cultural blend, and so I think that's just. I don't. I don't think that's um, something to be um, ignored. I think it's something to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess I would say if you if you see uh, a tradition, uh, some people working in a certain way that just you cannot wrap your head around, uh, either just appreciate it and say, "Wow, that's amazing. I'd love to learn more about that someday," or try it. Mm-hmm. Do it, try it yourself and say like, okay, I want to feel what that feels like. Mm-hmm. I would love to try one of those saws. Um, I would love to, you know, use that technique. Maybe you have a tool at hand that you can adapt to try that technique mm-hmm. um, and and try it. And uh, we had this 
uh, on the dispatch again, we had this this guy showing us this um, this technique for ripping a board that he learned in Trinidad. Yeah, and he was showing it around to other people, and so he shared it with us. And it's I can't even explain it. It's it's a unique. I mean, it's cool. So you're ripping a board at the bench as you're standing, and the saw is facing the bench. You're holding your rip saw with the, the teeth, teeth are pointed away, away from, from you. you. And with vertical. your other hand, you're holding the board on the bench. Uh, yeah. Really interesting way. Yeah, and I tried it. it, and I'm like, this is the most inefficient, crazy, <laughs> I can't do this. And what's awesome is it just shows me what's possible because yeah. there are a bunch of people who do that, and it's yeah. like second nature. They're like, yeah, that's of course, how they rip that's boards. just how you do it. That's how you do it. <laughs> that's awesome. So the <laughs> question is, like, what is missing in your own understanding? <laughs> Uh, because that is the efficient way of doing it in that place. So, um, yeah, every time, you know, every issue that comes out, and this next issue, issue 12, is no different. There are uh, looks at different craft traditions and different um, cultural practices I've never seen or heard of before. Mm, and yeah. I am so excited to be to be reading this stuff from these authors and to be seeing uh the photos and uh then we start tracking down resources right like mm -hmm. the uh this book right here we have a book on uh scandinavian log home building and the the joinery necessary for uh, raising a home you know this joinery that was developed over centuries uh, that you can just basically cut with an axe and a chisel mm. and these are things that that we just find absolutely fascinating and and really beautiful, and uh, we think that um, it's it's our job to seek to uh, preserve preserve them and not have them wiped out by just uh, uniformity yeah. or homogenization. Yeah. So everything we can do to facilitate people sharing, you know, researching their own traditions. So we have this one aspect, like if if you see another tradition. Uh, be in awe and appreciate mm -hmm. it. And then on the other hand, we want, you know, to encourage you, if you, you know, like in the, in light of what Amy Umble was saying, she was saying, I really like that tradition over there. That's cool. But I want to figure out where I came from. I mm -hmm. want to know what I have connections to already instead of making my own connections to some right. other thing. I want to figure out where I come from. I think that's the other thing. That's the other take home for us is we've, um, well, we really appreciate all these traditions and we want to do everything we can to highlight them. We also aren't running around trying to, you know, become Japanese woodworkers or to become right. Swedish or to become, we're trying to say, what do we know here? What do we have in our backyard? Um, what, what did the people who built this place, you know, what did they know and do? And so we want to yeah. replicate that or learn from it at least. Um, and so I think that's the other piece of it, is appreciate what other people are doing and learn from your own heritage mm -hmm. and, and cultivate that um, appreciation for where you came from. Right. I think that's really important because uh, if if I think what, what Copperthwaite is, was seeing was these um, vernacular traditions, these pre-industrial traditions, if they're not appreciated, mm. they could be just easily wiped out they're by forgotten. industrialization. Yeah, and so he's saying, "Hey, you might appreciate him, but someone you know, you it might get wiped out. So everything we can do to uphold and and celebrate all these different things, uh, he's going to say, I'm going to jump in and just say that's really great and hold it up and say, everyone, isn't this great? Yeah, yeah. So let's all appreciate <laughs> yeah. it, and in so doing, we can keep it going. Yeah, keep preserving it for the the beauty that exists there. Um, yeah. Hey, I've told you that my heritage is from royalty, right? No. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Have. You rub it in. Yeah, I do. So just so you know, that's, that's my ancestry. The, the optographs came to this country in the 1680s. Mm. And so optograph means of the count. And so way back in the day, there was a count or a duke who, um, his name was like Johann Wilhelm Delamarck or something. And he married a commoner could not pass down his royalty to his children, so they became of the count or optograph. Mm -hmm. yeah. So those are those are my people. And you know what my name means? I did small. <laughs> little. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. On that note. On that note, thank you all very much for listening to the Morris and Tenon podcast. Uh, so the uh, this podcast we put out and enjoy this 
from me, the royalty, and Mr. <laughs> Small over here. Uh, if you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below uh, or on our blog, and we will get back to you. So uh, we'll catch you next time.